Hello, it's Kamal Ahmed here, and I'm here to tell you about Energized. The brand new podcast, Intelligent Squared, is launching in partnership with Ipadrola. The climate crisis is the most pressing issue of our time. Temperatures are set to rise more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels in the next two decades, an increase that will cause irreversible damage to our planet. But is there still hope? If humans are to blame for climate change, then we must also provide the solutions. And that's where Energized comes in. Join me as I bring together experts and policymakers to delve deep into the key issues at the heart of the global drive towards net zero and the innovations that promise to accelerate the energy transition and transform the way we live. Just search Energized wherever you get your podcasts. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Today we continue our series of conversations focusing on the climate crisis, looking at the complex topic of ecocide. Here's Carl Miller with more. As COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland comes to a close this week and with world leaders finally leaving town and spectacle winding down, many may be asking some hard questions. What was it all for? What really got done? One person at COP who's been very busy indeed over the last couple of weeks is Jojo Mehta. She's co-founder of Stop Ecocide, a group working with legal experts and campaigners around the world to enshrine the concept of ecocide, crimes against the environment, into international law. Uh, we're also joined by Dan Gretton, writer, activist and teacher um, uh, Dan may be familiar to you as listeners of Intelligence Squared, having spoken to us last year about his book, I, You, We, Them, which looks at the history of desk killers, those whose actions, be it for governments or corporations, directly or indirectly cause huge amounts of damage to our societies. Both of you, very, very warm welcome to Intelligence Squared. Jojo, if we can begin with you, before we turn to this concept of ecocide, um, how has COP been? What are your reflections actually being up there on the amount of progress which is or isn't being made? 
That's an interesting one. Um, I have spent relatively little time in the blue zone, which is the sort of accredited political negotiating zone with all the pavilions. And we've had a very full program of events around Ecoside. Part of that reason that we've had that full program that actually isn't in the blue zone is that the conversation around Ecoside is not one of the ones that is happening in the blue zone. So what we would say is that there's an awful lot of talk going on. Um, I have to say that there may be a, a large percentage of blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, there are some new things that are, you know, some things that are different this time. There is a very strong indigenous presence, for example, in the Blue Zone, uh, which I believe has not been the case previously. Um, and there is a change in the sense of urgency and there is also a sense of frustration. I mean, I have to say that the time that I spent in the Blue Zone, there was a little bit of a sense of a sort of learned helplessness going on. Um, and I have to say it felt a little bit like walking through a kind of big trade show slash shopping mall. And while I'm sh- there are plenty Plenty of interesting conversations going on. I couldn't help looking at all the stands around me and thinking, you know, were each of these actually considered for their sustainability or their, you know, their, their recyclability when this was constructed? You know, all of this, this is kind of, it just felt like another trade show in terms of the vibe of it, in terms of the feeling of it. And, you know, very kind of fluorescent lit, lots and lots of conversations. And I have to say, I mean, I, I came to this work originally from kind of on the ground activism and there was a little part of me that was just going, talk to one of the security guards, find the emergency tannoy. <laughs> I love that. So is that a kind of structure of COP then? Is there two discernibly different things happening? Do we have one thing happening in the in the blue zone with all the kind of government delegates and authenticated diplomats and so on, and then a kind of fringe orbiting around it, which is perhaps more radical or more grassroots in nature? Um, yeah, I think that, I think that's the case. And I also think that some of the, you know, really interesting conversations are, I mean, among others, ones we're hosting. I mean, we had an extraordinary event the other day where I was speaking, but there was also an assistant director from the IMF was speaking, as was a regenerative venture capitalist, if you could say that, and an indigenous leader. And you can imagine that mix. It was extraordinary. I mean, the audience almost didn't know where to put themselves, but it was so constructive to actually have those voices in one room. And it was quite clear that that couldn't have happened within the the, the actual sort of official COP structure. So, yeah, I think I think it's probably fair to say that a lot of the perhaps, not all, but a lot of the more interesting conversations are happening outside the accredited zone. All right, well, let's turn to the concept of ecocide as well, because it feels like some of your work, Jojo, at least, is actually about bridging ideas from the fringe into the blue zone in many ways. So hopefully a softball question for you first. Um, tell <laughs> us about ecocide, what it is and why it's important. Yeah, the word was coined back in 1970 by Arthur Goulston, who's a biologist, who um, was one of those who helped design Agent Orange and then was horrified at the use to which it was put in the Vietnam War, um, the, the defoliant. And it was first mentioned on the international stage in 1972, but then it's kind of disappeared. And although there were um, sort of there was sort of a political and legal conversation perhaps going on behind the scenes, this whole concept and word didn't really re-emerge until the work of Polly Higgins, who was my dear departed closest colleague and friend and actually was born here in Glasgow. Um, and I worked with her for the last four and a half years of her life. And she had dedicated the last decade of it to this initiative to criminalize ecocide at the international level. So we co-founded this campaign, Stop Ecocide, that has now become the central communications hub of what is now a a fast-growing global movement. Basically, it's very precise. It has one very key aim, which is to add ecocide to the list of crimes in the Rome Statute alongside genocide, war crimes and crimes against humanity. And tell us then, Jojo, about what that would mean. So where are you trying to get that kind of definition recognised? At the International Criminal Court in The Hague, 
Um, and that comes via, it's, it's governments that make that happen. The International Criminal Court itself is simply a court. They don't decide what crimes are on that statute that governs the international crimes. And it's inspired partly by the fact that the ICC is the only global mechanism that directly accesses the criminal justice systems of its member states. So if you make something a crime at the International Criminal Court, you also have to include it in your own domestic legislation. So if you ratify it there, you've also got to enforce it here um, in all of those member states um, as they ratify. So that, that is the only global mechanism that does that. And so in, effectively, it's the most efficient way to create a profound sort of ground rule, if you like, that has a coherence across jurisdictions. And for those of us who aren't legal scholars, like quite how dramatic a legal shift is this? Are you arguing for the evolution of already well understood and enshrined legal concepts? Or is this about trying to take international law on a kind of dramatic hairpin turn of some kind? It's definitely not a hairpin turn. Um, I would say it's something <laughs> between those two things you just described, actually. And interestingly, I mean, a definition of ecocide emerged this year, courtesy of a, a panel of top international criminal lawyers and environmental lawyers convened by our foundation. And the definition is, is, is very short. It's very, it's very concise. I mean, I could even say it now. It's literally one sentence. You know, ecocide means unlawful or wanton acts committed with the knowledge that there is a substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term damage to the environment being caused by those acts. And, and, and that's basically it. There's then an explanatory paragraph for the terms, but that, that's pretty much it. And that definition is interesting because it's based very strongly on legal precedent. Most of the language in there, in fact, all of the language in that core part, will will be familiar to lawyers in, of, of various stripes from other conventions, for example, the Geneva Convention, the protocols associated with the Geneva Convention, also with the Environmental Modification Convention of the 1970s and others. So the language is actually will be familiar to international environmental lawyers and, and criminal lawyers. But what it does do is it takes international criminal law in a slightly new direction, which is to say that it criminalizes harm to the environment or the threat of harm to the environment per se. It doesn't have to involve human harm. And, and the current international crimes all revolve around harm to humans. And of course, that also echoes our, generally speaking, anthropocentric legal system, which does, um, you know, sort of revolve around harm to humans. And although there is, of course, a body of environmental law, which is mostly in the regulatory sphere with some crimes, um, you know, across the globe, that's only been around for 30 to 40 years. It's a relatively new body of law. Um, and it isn't on the whole taken as seriously as law that protects people or sometimes even more law that protects property. Um, and so by inserting this additional crime, what one is doing is actually creating, giving a kind of a foundation and a support and a reinforcement to all of that body of law and creating an, a, um, a kind of nudge towards what perhaps one might describe as a healthy taboo. I mean, just as a very brief example, I mean, you don't go to a government and say, oh, can I have a, a permit to kill 500 people for my new infrastructure project? I mean, it won't even cross your mind because, you know, that taboo is so profound. Uh, but you can go to a government and say, can I have a drilling license, a fishing license, a mining license? You know, all of these things that at their worst create really serious harm. So by kind of criminalizing ecocide at the, at the highest level in this way, there is this potential to sort of bridge, if you like, to, um, you know, a new consideration. Well, actually, of course, it's not new for a lot of the world. It's certainly new, it's new for the dominant Western paradigm um, to, to actually balance out those concerns so that we actually place harm to nature where it needs to be, where, you know, the apocalypse unfolding around us is telling us it should be. 
And Jojo, finally then, before we before we do turn to Dan, who would this, if this law was enacted, how different would the Blue Zone be, do you think? I mean, could all the world <laughs> leaders actually in the Blue Zone have travelled here or would some of them have been kind of arrested en route? <laughs> well, um, I mean, that's an interesting question because as you'll probably understand from the sort of a rule of law perspective, when this comes in, it won't be retroactive. Um, it, it will apply from when it applies. Um, and the important thing, and actually this is very much where we come in as, as a communications initiative, if you like, around this in a campaign is making sure that everybody is aware of the approach of this law. Because, you know, this is coming. We're already getting insurers and, you know, political advisors telling us they can see it coming. They just don't know exactly where. Um, the important thing is that people do see it coming because actually the real change happens in that period. Because when you can see a parameter approaching, that's when you're kind of going, okay, right. And the insurers, the insurers, for example, are going to be thinking, well, you know, in four or five years time, we won't be able to, you know, cover this act under Right, this activity. Investors are going to be thinking the same. You know, corporate actors, government officials are going to be realizing that, you know, serious change has to happen by that time. Just as when we brought in the, you know, data protection rules, everybody knew when they were coming in and that they had to comply by that point. So you kind of create a transition period and a compliance period, if you like, by the very virtue of the fact that people can see it coming. And also because actually to move this forward at the international level requires a certain degree of momentum and a certain number of states on board which means that the conversation is very live for quite some time before it arrives. So to answer your original question, by the time this comes in, I seriously suspect that those who would be normally attending COP would have already been taking great care to keep their hands clean and not to be having made decisions that were going to threaten really severe harm to the environment. That would be the plan. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up, life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Thank you. 
Well, uh, Dan Gretton is, is perhaps a great expert on people that haven't kept their hands clean over history. So, so, so Dan, why don't you uh, join us now and, and kind of tell us a bit about your idea of desk killers and what they are? Absolutely, yes. Well, I, I've been fascinated by the developing debate around ecocide, particularly last 10, 15 years, as it's gained more traction. And um, it's something I feel very, very strongly about. I, and I think there are lessons in the book I spent 20 years researching and writing and that came out two years ago, which Penguin have just brought out in paperback. I've been totally fascinated at the way I think our societies have completely missed one of the major, major things to do with perpetrators is that very, very few perpetrators kill directly, you know, with a gun or with a knife. I mean, the millions of people are killed by people in comfortable offices working for oil companies, pharmaceutical companies, whatever it might be, and they never see their victims. And this is the thing that has completely compelled me for the last, well, more than 20 years now, 25 years. And in fact, I was I was very involved for 30 years in an organization called Platform, an environmental organization. And we were talking, we began to do work on fossil fuel companies in 1995. So 26 years ago, we started working on particularly looking at BP and Shell. And the immediate prompt for that work was that on Wednesday, it will be 26 years since Ken Sarawiwa, the brilliant Nigerian author, and eight of his colleagues were executed in Port Harcourt um, by the Nigerian government. But they would not have been killed if it had not been for Shell and Chevron's environmental devastation of the Niger Delta. And this was a kind of absolute watershed moment for us in platform and for many, many people around the world. And it started us off on a project which is really still ongoing, which is looking at what is the responsibility of the perpetrators who work in corporations, organizations, government agencies, because we've never developed a legal framework properly to hold these people to account. And much of my work has looked at, I mean, I I go back to colonial times, to 19th century genocides, organized from Whitehall, you know, organized from London. (laughs) It's very relevant, obviously, to BLM and what's been happening, this enormous, brilliant development in the last couple of years. But I also think on ecocide, it's for some reason, it's been harder. And I'm fascinated in what Jojo said about the way that this concept has been around for 50 years, uh, from from 1970. And yet it's only in the last few years, it's just beginning now to gain traction. I think it's really helpful to look at the parallels with Nuremberg, the Nuremberg trials after the war in 45. And the fact that it took those crimes of genocide and crimes against humanity, it took from 1945 to the establishment of the Rome statutes and then the setting up of the International Criminal Court. I think that was 2000. I don't know if I'm right, Jojo, you can correct me, but it was round about 2000. So it took 55 years to go from having the concept of um, genocide and crimes against humanity and then to actually an international criminal court. And I think we're getting to a very, very interesting turning point. And there's always a danger of, there's always a danger of us in our bubble thinking this is getting traction and perhaps out there in the, in the kind of wider wider world. Maybe if you stop people on the streets, maybe only, I don't know, perhaps 10%, 15% would know the term ecocide. But I think we're, we're, we're really making progress, thanks to Jojo's work, thanks to Polly Higgins's fantastic work. So, I, you know, this is something that has completely haunted me for about 25 years. 
Um, but I think everything starts with, if you like, what seems like crazy ideas. And they're not crazy, but they're not mainstream yet. Jojo, how close are we? Where are you finding the resistances to enshrining ecocide in law? Okay, so that's, that's two very different questions. Um, so whereabouts are we? We're in a situation, well, very different even just from a year ago in terms of people's familiarity. I mean, I think Dan's estimate is probably not a bad one, actually, um, in terms of, you know, maybe percentage of people that might understand on the street. But if you'd have asked that question even six months ago, it would have been considerably less. So the, the acceleration is actually really quite extraordinary at the moment. And and, um, I think the definition was very important because it made it real for people. And, you know, although they've been working definitions in the past, this was the first time that, that it was actually, you know, that was convened in response to political appetite. And that's what attracted those top lawyers. And it was so diverse in terms of, you know, the geographically gender, but also in a legal background that it had a, a strong credibility. And landing, interestingly, in the political arena, it's been landing very well. So it's had some criticism from, you know, in sort of, you know, legal or academic circles for particular little bits and here there but but in terms of the politicians you know they kind of look at it and they go oh right that's ecocide um, and that's really significant it means that there was something it was a kind of a sweet spot that was hit with that definition and I think it's partly because it covers potentially the worst harms or the threat of the worst harms but also with that first threshold of unlawful or wanton it also reinforces existing law that may be different in different jurisdictions so it has actually been very well received politically over the course of the last year and a half, effectively, there are now 16 member states of the ICC um, in which this conversation is live at the parliamentary and or at the government level. And that's quite significant. And most people don't even know that. Um, and, you know, beyond that, there are at least half a dozen more states talking about it behind closed doors. I and mean, I'll give you a small example. I mean, we we held um, a little meeting, a sort of pre-launch meeting before the definition was launched in June. And we invited representatives from about 25 states. We expected to get four or five and we actually had 13 and not all of those have yet said something publicly. But it, it's very interesting to see how, you know, how this is now being taken really very seriously. And I think that there are a number of reasons for that. I think there's, in part, it's the, uh, the, the very stark reports that have been coming out over the last couple of years from the 1.5 degree report in 2018, right through to the one that came out this August from the IPCC that was really hugely stark and saying, you know, how, you know, pointing out tipping points that had already been passed and might take centuries, if not millennia, to rectify, you know, very, really sort of spelling out the situation that we're in. So that's obviously been part of, you know, that sort of shift, if you like, in people's receptivity to a, a concept like ecocide crime. But also... There's also been the, the uh, grassroots mobilizations and that those have made a very concrete difference. So, you know, whether that's the school strikes, whether that's Extinction Rebellion, you know, there's been a kind of level of disruption that has opened up that conversation within the media um, and within politics that has enabled this concept to land. So a few years ago, Molly would have people saying to her, um, oh, it's, it's, it's a bit extreme, isn't it? Should we start with some sustainable development? And, you know, she used to kind of sit there open mouth and go, how long do you think we've got? But now, since all of that conversation has been opened up you know there's there's a space in which this this concept is actually landing and and the thing is there's you know investors insurers ceos policymakers you know they all know that serious change is needed if we're going to actually sort of pull back from the brink a bit and and, and actually get into a safe operating space and what this potentially creates is a very precise not, not not a panacea by any means but a very precise missing ingredient that can change the landscape so instead of and this is one of the things that i think cop is often all about which is all about 
about kind of playing the same game better. Oh, we're going to increase our ambition. We're going to do this voluntary regulation, self-regulation, which is always a bit of a joke as a concept, um, especially when applied to oil and gas companies and so on. But, you know, we're going to increase ambition, you know, is, is what countries often say. But all of that is simply doing, you know, in a sense, it's that definition of madness, of carrying on with the same criteria and expecting to get different results. It, it doesn't happen. We're crawling in a direction that we should be sprinting in. And as soon as you stop trying to play the game better and actually change the rules of the game, suddenly you have a different playing field. It's a level playing field for the people that want to do better because they're not then going to be undercut by those that are continuing in the old polluting ways. Um, but it's also a point that it, it kind of unleashes creativity as well. So, I mean, as a former entrepreneur myself, there's nothing like a clear parameter for actually unleashing ideas and, and moving in, in a new direction. And of course, finance is like water. It just flows where you allow it to flow. So unless you put a particular stop, you know, it won't start flowing in a new direction. I suppose we, we could describe it as sort of necessary but not sufficient. Thank you, JJ. Dan, I know that a question that was really prominent during Nuremberg was one about kind of who the desk killers really were and how far down bureaucratic or corporate hierarchies the responsibility really should sit. You know, is it just the Nazi top command or is it also the petty bureaucrats? Is it the guards? Is it is it everyone that's kind of like, you know, participating in a society which is systemically uh, abusive? How do you make sense of that question? And, and I guess implicitly what I'm asking you as well is, is how should people make sense of that question when it comes to ecocide? Because I'm sure there are people listening to this, of course, that are beginning to feel quite poignantly that they're maybe desk killers themselves, or certainly members of a society where desk killers are, are rather more abundant than they would wish it to be. How do people make sense of this? Well, it's incredibly challenging, because the responsibility, as you say, I mean, probably you know, our friends, our families, people we love are involved in really, really some really, really dubious things. I mean, the whole of our society is, if you like, founded on such staggering levels of injustice. And if you really want to think about it, we all have responsibilities in terms of, you know, investment, not just people with actual physical investments, but the oil and gas industry is hugely complex in that way. Um, but I think that as far as the original question about Nuremberg, one thing that always struck me was the staggering way that the, if you like, the more direct killers were some of the people who were tried and were prosecuted and convicted. But if you look at a case like um, the, the IG Farben case, which was part of the Nuremberg trials, that was the biggest chemical corporation in the world who had had a huge slave labor concentration camp at Auschwitz, um, at Monowitz, and they were building the synthetic fuels and the synthetic rubber plant, 30,000 slave laborers. Now, at that trial, out of 22 people who were indicted, only half of those were actually convicted. <laughs> you know, so it's sort of, you, you read stories post-war, and many, many historians have said, in fact, the people who were involved in corporations basically escaped justice in a staggering way. I mean, there's a whole chapter in my book about the very educated civil service who organized the infamous Wannsee Conference in January 1942. Now, of those, eight had doctorates. The people who were actually planning the coordination of the Holocaust, eight of those men out of 15 held doctorates in things like theology and law. Actually, interestingly, I think four or five of them had doctorates in law. And those people, many of them were not even sent to prison. They were given sort of suspended sentences or they were interned for two or three years and then released. Some of these people died in the 1980s, you know, never having spent time in prison. 
These are the architects of the Holocaust, the civil service. And so the problem I have is that I think in some ways the legal frameworks that we have to hold Deskulus to account just have not worked historically. Um, and one of the one of the uh, actually there's a little um, there's a little thing that I reread today that has struck me in relationship to this call, and I think it, I think it's very very relevant to what Jojo has um, been talking about as well, because um, this is um, Gottsali, a great writer on the Holocaust, talking about the medical the people who are involved in the euthanasia program, and this is what this is what he said about the lim- the limitations of the legal of legal efforts post war to hold the people who'd been responsible for the euthanasia killings to account. Much of what is known about the Nazi period has been uncovered, not by historians, but by police commissioners and prosecutors. But the prosecutors' interest is limited. They are concerned with finding individual proof of violent crimes. And that meant, that that phrase, individual proof of violent crimes, meant that they could not look systemically. They couldn't look at the whole system. Um, of how the euthanasia program, how the Holocaust had been organized. Another fantastic historian of the Holocaust who had a huge impact on me when I started researching this period was Raoul Hilberg, um, a great American historian. And in his final book, he said, to truly understand the Holocaust, we would have to look at all of the agencies, all of the corporations, all of the kind of white-collar institutions of Nazi Germany. And it's extraordinary. Over three or four pages of this book, he just lists all the organizations, the corporations, the systems. And so I suppose, you know, it's, it's a slightly complicated answer, but I suppose I have some doubts about whether we have the legal frameworks required to truly hold Deskulas to account. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of, I, I hope I'm, I hope I'm wrong, but I sometimes think that the, the method of the law, the, the actual, the actual, uh, forgive me, but this is, it is, it is, it is true. I think this is relevant. I, I, I think possibly 90% of lawyers working at the moment are involved very, very broadly and very, very crudely in helping the status quo be preserved. And I know there's a minority of extraordinary lawyers, and and Jojo is one, and Philip Sands, of course, who who um, you, was the the cha- one of the co-chairs of the panel that um, Jojo and Ikasai um, yeah, got the, with this fantastic definition, which I think is real progress. But but I I have a wider question, which is, um, can lawyers do lawyers have the bro- as broad a definition as possible? to really hold Deskulas to account. So Jojo, is that enough? Is what you're arguing for enough to pursue corporate ecocides? And and if not, what would be the step after an enshrining of that definition? So firstly, the International Criminal Court focuses on individual responsibility and it tends to go, it wants to go as high up the chain as possible. And this obviously is, is how we see the real power of it. It'd be great, obviously, to prosecute corporations as well. But of course, the problem at the moment is that those decision makers, those death killers, if you like, um, can sort of hide behind the corporate veil. Um, and, and, you know, most sort of environmental cases end in fines or a slap on the wrist, or if you're lucky, you know, some kind of compensation for the victims, um, and, and a bit of naming and shaming, which is all useful, and a bank of evidence, which is also useful. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't change behavior. Now, if you are putting somebody's personal freedom on the line, and they know you're doing that, 
um, effectively, this is again the seeing it coming thing, you know, then what you're going to see is an actual change in behavior. And, and we, you know, we already know that criminal law does have this potential, you know, you can change behavior. I mean, and, and it's a normative thing. And this is something that Philip Sands talks about a lot. You know, it is about changing consciousness. You know, we're not under any illusion that when you make ecocide a crime, suddenly no ecocides will happen anymore or suddenly, you know, but it will make a difference. And you can see, I mean, all you have to do is think about the fact that, you know, murder has been a crime since God knows when, but imagine if it wasn't. I mean, it's, it's a crime and, it, and it's therefore a taboo. It's therefore condemned. And, uh, and at the moment, ecocide isn't. So unless you put it in that position, you won't, you won't have that happen. And of course, because those, those decision makers have their own personal freedom on the line, you will see changes in behavior. I mean, there was actually a study done by the University of Colorado around this connection between changing regulation and including a criminal aspect to environmental law. And it was quite clear that if you change regulation, all that happens is the corporations change their budgeting. Whereas if you, whereas if you actually include a criminal element, you actually see changes in behavior. And one example from the UK might be the Child Protection Act. I mean, I mean, this is, I, I still can't quite believe that before 1989, it was actually okay and legal to kind of beat up your kid as a disciplinary approach. You know, um, and at that time, I mean, I even know people whose parents argued against the Child Protection Act because they were like, no, it's up to me if I want to spank my child. Um, now, if you stop someone in the street and say, is it okay to beat up your kid if they're not behaving? The vast majority of people will be shocked and say, well, no, it's not okay. And what that kind of shows it, uh, that it was that at that moment, there was a kind of evolution in the public consciousness of there needs to be something here that's currently missing in terms of a prohibition. So it's partly a reflection of, of, of a moment, if you're understanding in the moral imagination, but it also actively changes that as well. It actively enforces that, uh, you know, in time going forward so that it becomes a taboo over time. And so I think that's really important. I think the other thing we have to look at here is, you know, yeah, while I have absolutely every sympathy with what Dan's just said about, you know, how did, he, how did these people get away with this? You know, at the same time, what we're ultimately looking at here is changing an approach that's very deeply embedded. I mean, it's centuries deep, the embedded mindset that we have in our Western dominating paradigm, which is one of alienation. It's one of alienation, disconnection, separation. You know, where effectively we, we separate our minds from our bodies, we separate humanity from nature, we separate men from, you know, the masculine from the feminine, you know, all of this stuff. You know, effectively, we've now got religious leaders like, um, you know, Pope Francis or, you know, uh, Patriarch Bartholomew or indigenous leaders pointing out a reality to us, which is that we are deeply embedded with and intertwined with the natural world around us. And that's a fact. You know, all we're effectively doing is trying to reflect that within the law. And on the other hand, you've got the political actors and the economic actors who like to think of themselves as fact-based secular people who are actually operating on faith. Their faith is in an economic system, you know, that was based on GDP, you know, that, that seems to permit, you know, the idea of infinite growth on a finite planet, which is clearly just totally unrealistic. So what we're looking at here, uh, you know, are some very deep kind of mindset issues. And, you know, to the extent that in a way, I would almost contend that it is that depth and that, that sort of history of that mindset that has enabled the kind of death killing, certainly around the environmental arena that we see, because, you know, that disconnect is so strong that people simply don't relate to what is the air they breathe, the food they eat, the water they drink. You know, we totally depend on the natural world. And so in a way, this kind of rather surgical intervention of criminalizing ecocide does have the potential to sort of just be a bit of a reality check in that way. So that people kind of, you know, start to think, well, hang on a minute, this is all interconnected. You know, I can't keep, you know, I'll be sawing off the branch I'm sitting on if I carry on doing this. Well, 
Thank you both so much. I mean, it's a rare thing to see two big ideas such as both of yours and Twain and bounce of each other in the way that I have over the last 35 minutes, not least, of course, with the two great authorities of them here talking for them. So both of you, thank you so much. Jojo Meta, thank you to you, co-founder of Stolpico Side, and to you, Dan Grattan, author of I, You, We, Them. I'm Carl Miller, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thank you very much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.